Hello, Mountain. How's everybody doing? Did anybody do their homework? Did anybody read chapter two for today? Let me see your hands. Okay, there's my A students. Great, way to go. If you didn't, that's okay. We're going to catch you up, and it's not too late to kind of read for next week. Welcome to week two of the story. This is a great, if you're new at Mountain, kind of just figuring out how to find your way in, this is a great time to be uh, joining with what God's doing around this place as we begin this thing called the story. Hey, have you ever, um, have you ever like walked into a room and a bunch of people are in there and you can tell that they're in the middle of like telling some story or something, some joke that you missed the beginning of and you get there and just as you kind of lean in to figure out what's going on, somebody puts their, slams their hand and says, so the rabbi says to the pastor, if we don't get that duck out of here, we'll never get back to the zoo. <laughs> and everybody laughs and slaps their, you know, and they're looking at you and you're like, ah, I get it. But you don't get it because you didn't hear the whole front part of the joke, right? You didn't hear the setup, the context and everything like that, right? You can't know the punchline if you don't know the story. And, you know, that's how a lot of us, I think, have over the years been reading the Bible, is we get these little snippets, we get little punchlines here and there, little parts about Moses, you know, and Adam and Jesus and all this stuff. And, and sometimes we see other people kind of really take a lot of delight in it. We're like, ah, I get it. But a lot of us feel like, you know, honestly, I'm not sure I do get it. And so that's why we're doing what we're doing here. We're, we're doing this thing called the story so we can step back and hear the whole story. We're, we're using this book called the story, 90% of which is taken right from the Bible. It's like a collection of carefully selected stories of the Bible woven together, reads like a novel. So we're going to be able to step back and understand the whole thing. This isn't a replacement for the Bible, but it's a great resource so that we can understand and hear the story of the Bible. So if you don't have a copy, man, I hope you'll get one. Get the audio version, listen to it on your commute or you know, Spanish version, whatever you need to do to, to get that rolling. Um, and it's not too late also to be... Um, Finding some other friends to connect with, to talk with about this each week. Uh, maybe some friends at, at school or work or your neighborhood. Or if you need help finding a group, we've got scads of groups that we can kind of help plug you into here um, you know, at, at Mountain as well. Here's what we believe is going to happen and is already happening. Not only, as we go, go through this, not only are you going to know the story and get the punchline, um, you're, we're going to have an opportunity to, to come to know the God of the story. And when that happens, it'll change your story. It'll change us. And that's what we want to see happen over the next few weeks. Now, we've subdivided the 31 chapters of this book into these seven different sections or acts. And the first three chapters that we're in the middle of right now is called Once Upon a Time. Because Once Upon a Time, as soon as you hear those words, you know it's like the beginning. You know that some, you know, it introduces the story. And that's exactly what the early chapters of Genesis do for us. They, um, they kind of set things up. Last week, we jumped into Genesis 1 through 9, which was chapter 1 of the story. And that was the beginnings of God creating. And it kind of fall, can be sort of explained in three different moves. If you were here, you'd help me, you helped me rehearse this here. First thing we learned is that God created everything and it was all good. It was all good, right? And then sin messes up everything and it's all broken. And, and then God doesn't leave it there, but God says, God promises to rescue and redeem and restore. And he says, one day it's going to be all right. All right. 
And so God is going to begin this week in chapter 2 to begin putting into motion his plan. To sort of put everything back to rights. To sort of address the fact that we live in a world now that is filled with selfishness and sickness and sin and sorrow. And, and, and to sort of start pulling it back together. And this plan involves God saying, I'm going to call again a people who are going to walk with me, just like they did in the garden. People who are going to be in my image, just like we were meant to be, who are going to become a blessing to the whole earth, a family, a nation that will spread and grow and bless the whole earth, and a family out of which I will one day bring my own son, the Messiah, who will save my people from their sins. That's God's plan. Now, that's what you would call kind of the upper story. I want to talk to you about something real quick that will help us as we go through the story. And that is that there's always kind of two levels of story going on. There's an upper story and a lower story, and they run kind of side by side. The upper story is what God's up to. That's what God is doing. That's his plan to rescue and redeem and to bring us back into relationship with himself. That's the big overarching purpose of what the whole story is really all about and what God's doing. But the, the way God does that in his overarching story is by involving himself and inviting us to be involved in his upper story. When you get out of bed and just go through a normal day, that's your story. That's your life. That's the lower story. And God is always using the lower story to make his upper story purposes happen. Does that make sense? You and I sometimes don't even realize it. We just think we're living out our story, our life. But there's always more than the lower story. And God is inviting you and me to take the blank pages of the future of our lives and say, God, I, I want to invite you to help write the kind of story that only you could tell in my life. I want to ask you to make it epic. And as we do that and surrender our agenda and our future in trust and faith to God, he draws us into what he's doing and where he's going and what he's making happen on the planet. And your story finds its meaning as it's woven into the upper story. So we're going to be moving back and forth between upper story and lower story. And some of the lower stories just happens in ordinary guys' lives like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. We're going to kind of quickly step back and take a peek at uh, what has happened in chapter 2. Uh, do a quick survey, and we'll do that via video. So watch the screen. We'll get everybody all caught up. Okay, let's watch the screen. There once was a man named Abram, who was a descendant of Noah. God told him to move with his wife, Sarai, an entire family away from where they lived. God made a promise. I will make you into a great nation and bless you. And all of the people on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram and his family left. At one point, they stopped and God told him to look around. All the land that you see, I will give to you and your children. Then, one night, God took Abram outside. Look up and count the stars. This is the number of children you will have. But Abram was already 75 years old, and Sarai was way too old to have children. So they decided that Sarai's servant Hagar should have Abram's child. Hagar became pregnant, 
and gave birth to a son named Ishmael. Yet God told Abram again, You will be the father of many nations. God changed their names to Abraham and Sarah and promised that it would be through Sarah that God's blessing would come. Exactly as God promised, Sarah became pregnant, giving birth to a son named Isaac. When Isaac was still a young boy, God told Abraham to take his son up on a mountain and sacrifice him. Abraham took Isaac, laid him on an altar, and took out his knife to kill him. But an angel stopped Abraham and God provided a ram to sacrifice in place of Isaac. Years later, Abraham and Sarah died and left everything they owned to Isaac. Isaac married and had twin sons, Jacob and Esau. Esau was Isaac's favorite, and as the oldest, he was set to gain his father's inheritance. But Jacob wanted the inheritance. So he came up with a scheme to trick his father, who was now old and blind, into promising it to him. He dressed in Esau's clothes and put animal skin on his hands because Esau's hands were very hairy. Confused, Isaac gave his blessing to Jacob and promised him the inheritance instead of Esau. This caused a huge fight, one that almost ended in murder before they went their own ways. Thankfully, they reunited, and God promised to bless Jacob's family. Jacob had 12 sons of his own, and like his father and grandfather before him, Jacob had a favorite son. Little did Jacob know that his favoritism would put his son, Joseph, in danger of being killed by his own brothers. So a lot of material, a lot of people, and a lot of big parts of the story here. What we're going to do today is after panning that whole section, we're going to allow God to take the camera and zoom it down in tightly on, uh, on one man, Abraham. Abraham. Uh, this is a great and classic part of the entire Bible. If you open your Bible to Genesis chapter 12, if you're in the story, it's page 13. Um, this is Abraham, very prominent guy in the Bible. 13 chapters in Genesis devoted to Abraham. He's mentioned about 75 times in the New Testament. And uh, we, we begin to see here, uh, this is about a thousand years after the part with Noah. So a thousand years has passed. The Bible doesn't really talk about much. Just as all of a sudden we're going to slow down and zoom in on this guy named Abraham. Look at chapter 12, verse 1. Here's what we've got. We've got this He's pretty elderly. He's retired, living off his 403B in the suburbs, driving a couple cars with his wife, you know, his wife, a little yippy dog. That's, that's where we are, okay? Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. The Lord had said to Abram, go. Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land that I will show you. Verse 2. And I will make you into a great nation. And I will bless you. And I will make your name great. And you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. So God is saying we're starting the whole thing. Remember we had that earthly dilemma that begged for a heavenly solution. God says, this is it. I'm going to start blessing the whole world. I'm going to back it up and do it through people 
I'm going to do it through a great nation. I'm going to start with you, Abraham. Now, if you just start looking at this, there, there's some problems with this. God, I don't know if God really thought this through. Um, because this is kind of crazy and ridiculous on the surface of it. To begin a whole nation, starting with one old man and his wife, doesn't, it, this isn't the guy I would start with. Let's just put it that way. We all think of Abraham as his Bible hero, but no, no, no. As he's living out his lower, lower story, there's a lot of reasons that this is not the guy. I mean, for, for starters, Joshua 24 tells us that Abram comes from a family of idol worshipers. His father, Terah, was an idol maker. Okay? That doesn't seem like a minor detail when you're trying to build a family of faith. I, I, this guy, Abram did not grow up in a godly family. That should be interesting and important to those of us who also did not grow up in godly families. And if that wasn't a big deal, well, then there is the detail of their age. I mean, you're going to build a nation beginning with a guy who's 75 years old. His wife isn't exactly a spring chicken either. She's like 65 and whatever. And if that wasn't a big enough problem, she's barren. They can't have children. This is an infertile couple. It's like God is intentionally stacking the deck against his own plan. Can, can you see God explaining this to the angels? It's like, yep, I'm going to build me a nation. I'm going to start, I'm a, you know, all the stars in the sky, that's how many people we're going to have. And I'm going to bless the whole world through that. I'm going to put this thing back together and put it all to rights. And he's telling that to the angel. And the angel's like, awesome, God, great plan. You know, hey, here's a couple over here. Let's start with them. You know, they, like they play tennis every other week. They're a happy, healthy little couple. And God's like, no, 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 how about, how about them? And the angels look over and they're like, those two with the walkers? Are, are, are you kidding me? He's like, yeah, with the white tennies and the hearing aids. Yeah, that's, that's, that's the one for that's going to do it, you know. God says, I'm going to build a people of deep faith, as many as the stars in the sky, and I'm going to use an idol-worshiping old man and his barren wife to do it. So I'm going to give you a little spoiler alert here, a little insight into what we're going to see all through the story. If you're a, if you're a person who's known God a long time and you've worked through the Bible before, you already know this, but it's, just, it's one of those things we've got to keep saying out loud, and that is this, that God has a habit, a preference, if you will, of, of using the most unlikely people to accomplish his purposes. He just, he just seems to always roll this way. He, he, he just wants to, to, to use the most unlikely and unexpected circumstances and people to do what he would want to do to write his story. It's just how he rolls. I mean, think Abraham's old and God uses him. Jacob was a lying, deceiving cheat and God used him. Leah was coyote ugly, and, and God used her. Moses just, 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 you know, had a stuttering thing, and, and yet God uses him as a kind of leadership spokesperson to get the people out of Egypt. Gideon was a scaredy cat, and God used him in a major military victory. God uses the most unlikely people. Samson had a problem with the ladies, to, un, to understate it. He was an arrogant, long-haired, wild man with no self-control, and God used him to lead his people. Rahab was a prostitute, worked in the red light district, and God used her. David had an affair and initiated a, a cover-up murder scandal. All of that out of the White House, no less. When he was king, God used him. Elijah was moody and suicidal. Jeremiah was super depressed, a real downer of a guy. Jonah kept saying flat out no to God. God said, go this way. Jonah said, no thanks, I'm going that way. Of course, then he got real down in the mouth and the whole thing was hard to swallow. A whale of a story, something fishy about it, but 
Anyway, it's enough about time you're ready to spit up. You see that the point is, point is, God uses unlikely people. Naomi, she was a widow. She was a widow. She had no place, no prominence, no people, no power, no position. But God says, I want to use Naomi. Mary was a young, single female in a culture that didn't honor that status. John the Baptist was just weird, eating bugs, living in the dirt, you know. And the woman at the well had five failed marriages. God used all of them. Martha was obsessive. Zacchaeus was compulsive. Peter was impulsive. So you see, God, it's never what you'd, ex- it's never what you'd expect, but it's what you find in the story. God uses the most unlikely people to do his purposes. He uses ordinary people to do extraordinary things. And, and I think the reason might just simply be because that way God can make sure everybody knows it's him. And not some brilliant person or some smart person or some strong person. God purposely, the New Testament teaches, uses weak things on purpose to show God's strength. He uses, he uses like um, his own wisdom to kind of confound human wisdom all the time. And so maybe that's important for you. If you've ever had the thought pass through your mind that you're not really qualified to be used by God. If you've ever thought for a moment that your story is kind of messed up or that who you are and what you've written on the first part of your life story can't possibly be converted into something that would be like part of God's story. It's pretty important for us to to know this. If you feel that way, it just means you don't yet understand how God works. You don't know the story very well. And and sometimes we just listen to the wrong voice. The same voice that talked to Eve in the garden, the serpent that whispered to her. The Bible, Jesus says, is is our accuser today telling you that you're not good enough and that that God doesn't want you, can't use you. He's disgusted and disappointed with you all the time. So maybe you think like that. You know, I'm too old. My my best days are behind me and my service, I'm going to let someone else, let, let the young folk do that. Or I'm too young. Or I walked out on my marriage and now that just kind of ruined me. Or I had a financial or business mess up and that has just tarnished me. So I, you know, I just kind of, I'm not going to do the God thing. I'm just going to try to live my life and write my lower story the way I would want. Or I've been so loose sexually or something's happened to me. I've been abused or whatever. I feel like damaged goods and I'm too far gone. Or, I, or sometimes people say I, I've struggled with addiction for so long. I long to be free from it, but I'm bearing the secret and I'm weary and I, I just... I've hoped in the past that God could change my story, but I just don't, I don't think, frankly, it's against all hope. Or maybe you just feel like you're just boring and ordinary, nothing special about you. If you're boring and ordinary or messed up or flawed or broken, then you are a prime candidate. If you're a human being, what he's looking for, what he's looking for is someone who will surrender to him. Because that's when he can do something. So it's, it, shouldn't, it should stop surprising us at some point that when God wanted to start a national prison ministry, he would use an ex-con named Chuck Colson to do it. Or that when he wants to really teach a lot of people about joy, he would use a quadriplegic named Johnny Erickson Tata to do it. And, and in our own community right here, God wants to, to transform and to bless, and he wants to, he wants to bless a neighborhood. And you know what? I, there's, a, there's a woman in our church who's just a single mom, stay-at-home mom, but, but, but she's, uh, she's opening her home to a study in her neighborhood, and I think God's going to change the neighborhood through her. I know God can transform a kid through a, 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 a God can transform a school. Through a kid who's just starts saying, I'm going to become involved in, in FCA, or I'm going to start inviting people to collide and echo. I see that happening. 
God can use a guy who grew up without a father to lead his family and to lead other men on how to be courageous and honor their wives and their families. God's doing that. God can use an ordinary gal who grew up in the inner city of Baltimore who didn't have a great foundation but who now knows Jesus and is therefore using her time to pour into other young girls so they can be godly and strong and know they're beautiful and loved by God. See how God does this? God uses single moms who find time to serve. He uses executives who find ways to give generously. He knows he uses widows who, who this very day got on their knees in prayer that you would be hearing what God has for you today. God's using a teacher to transform his school, calling other teachers together to talk about the story. One story at a time. And it starts with, if you want to get to where God says, hey, look what I did with that. If you want to get there, you want to get there like Abraham who is going to be a blessing to the whole world, it starts with, it starts in a word, it starts with faith. That was the qualifier for all of these people that God chose to use. In a word, faith. And this is, this is where I want to hover in today, hover over and hone in today, this idea of faith, because Jesus asks for the same kind of faith from you if you want to follow him. As God asked from Abraham way back when. So your story needs to look a little bit like Abraham's. So let's take a look at it and see what we can learn about faith. You be thinking about what kind of faith you have in God because that's going to determine your story. That's going to determine whether you just learn the story or whether it changes your story. Look at Genesis chapter 12 verse 1. Genesis 12 1. The, the Lord said to Abram, Go. From your country. Leave your people. Leave everything you know and love. Leave it all. And you're going to go to the land I'm going to show you. This is important to think about, folks. Because I think a lot of us misunderstand what faith is. I think a lot of us think faith is some kind of feeling. Some kind of, I'm going to become overwhelmed with some warm emotional sense. And butterflies are going to circle my head. And then I have faith. Oh, it just feels so great. It's like as if that's what faith is. But not according to the Bible. According to the Bible is, God told Abraham to do something. Go, leave, I'll tell you where later. And, and Abraham had to think, you know, man, I got, you know, God, thank you for, for the opportunity here. I've got some other friends who are moving to Florida. That'd be nice, someplace warm with a Bob Evans and a shuffleboard. That'd be great, you know, at this stage in life. He didn't know, though. Anytime you're really comfortable, that's probably the time that God is getting ready to ask you to do something. Move you out of your comfort zone. Here's the thing about faith. Look at verse 4. God said to do something. Go. Leave. And verse 4. So Abram went. As the Lord had told him. 75 years old. Packs up his wife. Loads the Winnebago. And off they go. Wait. What? Seriously? You you, You picking up what he's putting down here? This guy doesn't even know where he's going. He only knows one thing. And that is that God told him to do something, and he did it. When God makes something clear to you, and you do it, that's what biblical faith looks like. It's not a feeling. It's not something in your head. It's not something in your heart. It's something in your hands and your feet. He obeys. The New Testament writer of Hebrews would put it this way. Verse 8 of chapter 11. By faith. 
Abraham, when he was called to go to that place that he would later receive his inheritance, he obeyed and he went, even though he didn't even know where he was going. God said, jump. And he said, how high? On the way up. And that is what the Bible says faith looks like. Faith is taking action. Faith is obedience. Here it is. Faith is obedience in action. Doing what God says, even when you're not sure where he's going or where he's leading you. So if you know me very well, you, you know I'm not exactly the best handyman. Um, my brother is a carpenter. He got that gift, but I, I really didn't. So it wasn't exactly a subtle hint some years ago when my father-in-law gave me a nice little handyman fix-it guide to your whole house. It's like, thanks, pops. But I really enjoyed that book. I would sit on the couch and I'd read that book. There's so many fascinating things in that book. I'd sit down on the couch. I'd leaf through it. It's like, hey, honey, look here. How to fix your toilet. Cool. I'd read. I just, I enjoyed reading that book. I, I, I looked at a lot. I read a lot of it. I'd sit on my couch and I, oh, here's how to do spackling. Oh, here's how to, you know, you can build a doghouse. Boy, all this great stuff. You know, occasionally, you know, it's very, I don't know how my wife refrained from walking by and just pointing out, you know, just sitting there on the couch reading the book isn't necessarily going to fix the house up. Right? I can read that book all day long. You can learn a lot of information, but friends, that book at the end of the day is not really about information. That book is supposed to be about application, right? And friends, that's, that's how we need to learn to deal with the story as well, with the scriptures themselves. Who cares if you learn the story if it doesn't change your story? Who cares? I don't care if you learn the Bible names. Do you really? Like there's an entrance exam? You know, People who, who, Christians love to sit around and talk about the Bible. They love to go to Bible studies. And then we told each other somewhere years ago that you got really mature if you went to a lot of Bible studies. You learned a bunch of stuff. Like that was somehow counted for something. That counts for about as much as me, you know, having a, a roof leaking water into my floor while I'm reading a chapter about it. It's like, well, I, it says right here how to fix it. At some point, you got to get off the couch. Right? The story isn't for learning, it's for living. Abraham hears from God and he obeys. He gets off the couch and he does something. What's God telling you to do? What's God saying to you? And what are you going to do about it? You're going to have another study and talk about it? You're going to sit on the couch and dream about it, tell about it? See how fascinating? At some point, we got, Abraham, I had all these excuses. He had the same, he's got better excuses than you got. He's too old. His wife didn't have children, you know. Tell me where we're going first, whatever. But you know what? Genesis 15 says, Abraham believed the Lord and he credited it to, God credited it to him as righteousness. That's, even when it didn't make sense against all odds, think about your faith right now. When I, when I read this passage from Romans, Paul talks about Abraham's faith. He's talking about our faith. Think about your own. Against all hope, Abraham, in hope, believed. You ever done that? Against all hope. And so he became the father of many nations, just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be, as many as the stars in the sky. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old, and that Sarah's womb was dead. Sometimes when everything seems dead, you've got to decide, will you waver? He said, yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, Listen, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. Are you fully persuaded? Fully persuaded that 
God has the power to do what God wants to do? So much of your story is going to come down to one simple question. Do I believe God? Do I, do I really believe God? That's how your story is going to be written. You don't get the job you applied for. You don't get into the school you're hoping to get into. Do you believe God? I don't, I don't, I'm not saying do you believe in God. You believe there is a God. Do you feel God? Do you hear from God? That's not, that's not biblical faith. Biblical faith is do you believe God when she dumps you and your world falls apart, when you're being bullied, when things aren't going well, when you're up against some terrible hardship, do I believe in God? Do I believe God? I talk to couples sometimes. They talk to me about some, they've got some issue in their, you know, a premarital couple maybe with some sexual sin in their life and they're trying to work through this and so forth or, you know, or they're living outside uh, of marriage, living together outside of marriage and struggling with things. And we can talk through all kind of stuff and, you know, the pros and cons of different things. But at the end of the day, it just comes down to, do you believe God? Do you believe that God, God's way might be better than the way you're doing it? That's it. That's it. I, I, you know, maybe you're a person who struggles with generosity. I think a lot of us do. But I have found that the question about generosity and becoming a generous person comes down to one question. Do I believe God? That's really what it comes down to. Do you believe that he'll take care of you if you bless someone else? Do you believe he will reward generosity? Do you believe that what the Bible says when he says you'll reap, you know, reap what you sow? You believe that it's more blessed to give than receive, that it's good to put, store up treasures in heaven. You either believe it or you don't. If you say, well, I believe it. But your giving and your generosity doesn't show some, some place where you're actually having to get out on a limb where you have to trust God to provide and to come through, then, I, then you don't have biblical faith. Biblical faith isn't saying stuff. It's doing it. Do I believe God knows what's best about how I should make friends and relate to the world? Do I believe God? Do I believe God for what he says about how to live in my marriage? Do I believe God about how, what he says about how to conduct my business? Do I believe God that when he says he loves me? Do I believe God about what he says about the future? You know, some time ago, my heart broke for a woman whose husband had died unexpectedly and she was afraid. She was alone. She was feeling like her whole world was caving in. As I hugged her, she sobbed. And then she said, I guess it's time for me to figure out what I really believe. Yep. Because we can say, I believe in the resurrection. I believe that Jesus died and rose again. I believe that death is not a dead end, but a doorway. We can say it, but there come certain moments in life where there's a test and then you show. Do I believe God? Abraham did, and it was credited to him for righteousness' sake. Do you believe God? Faith is obedience in action. Let me tell you something else about faith. Faith, sometimes with faith, the kind of faith Jesus is calling us to, sometimes in faith, you've got to outdrive your headlights. You, you, you know what I mean when I say outdrive your headlights? Like at night, you know, in Minnesota, we have, we have real blizzards in Minnesota, real, real snow. And, uh, but even, you know, even anywhere you, you, you go, you're at night, it's foggy and you're driving and you realize your headlights only shoot down the road so far. They only illuminate so much of the path ahead. 
And, and, and when it, in the cloudier it gets, and the foggier, or the, or the more rain or wind or whatever, you've got you to slow down. The right thing to do when you're in a car, when you can't see past your headlights, is you slow down or pull over. But with faith, sometimes you just got to put the pedal to the metal, and you've got to keep driving, even though the headlights are only going out so far. You can only see so much. You don't understand. It doesn't make sense, but you know God is telling you to go. Faith sometimes means you ought to drive your headlights, and you keep on going. If you can see everything, is it really faith? If you knew everything, you'd be God. You don't know everything. And neither do I. When, when Thomas saw Jesus' scars in his hands and side, he said, oh, I believe. And Jesus said, awesome, glad you believe because you saw. Blessed are those who don't see like this and believe. Blessed are those who put the pedal to the metal when their headlights are only shooting out to the front end of the car. Because I said go, and they said, here I am. I'm going. One of the reasons that they had such trouble trusting God back in the day was God's sense of timing. Anybody here ever had trouble trusting God's sense of timing? Yeah, I think God has said he's going to do this or he wants to come through and do that thing, but it doesn't seem like he's doing it. So what we often do is we take things into our own hands. Yes? This is what Abraham and Sarah did. We're committed to your plan, God, but you're a little bit slow, so we're going to help you out. I mean, they're looking at each other like, you know, we're not getting any younger. God said he's going to give us kids, and then in months and weeks and years, it would pass by, and it's like, what's going to happen here? We better get on with this. We got, it's like, like Sylvester Stallone thinking about, you know, we better get on with Rocky Seven because I'm not getting any younger, you know? So it's like... You know, the nursing home rumble, we got to ring this bell and, and get this thing going here. You know, it's not going to get prettier. So they decide they need to give God some help with his plan. You ever make that mistake? Because waiting on God is hard. So what they do is, you know, this part of the story, Genesis 16, Sarai, Abraham's wife, had, had no children. So she has this Egyptian servant named Hagar. Can you imagine this? She says to Abram, I don't know, you know, the Lord won't let me have any kids. So, so why don't you go sleep with Hagar, I guess. Maybe we'll get this thing rolling. Let's ring the bell and get this thing started through her. That God needs an assist. And so she, she, Abraham goes looking for Hagar. And then, you know, she gets pregnant and they give birth to Ishmael. That wasn't the plan. God says, that's not the one. He's still going to bless Ishmael, make him a nation. But later, you know what? That, that just led to all kinds of problems. Verse 12 Ishmael's hand will be against everyone, everyone's hand against him. He will live in hostility toward all his brothers. Ishmael's the father of the Arab peoples. Isaac's the father of the Jewish peoples. 4,000 years later, you still got Christians and Jews and Arabs and everybody else fighting with each other. And it all started when Abraham and Sarah said, we just can't wait on God. Sometimes it's hard to wait, isn't it? Hard to wait. Like this, like this little doggy here, you know, he knows what it's like to be hard to wait. But sometimes it's better to wait. Right? You stink things up. You get in there. They couldn't see. You ever, you ever get in a position like that? You, God has said, but you just start going looking for Hagar. I just got to, we just got to have to do this myself. And what God is looking for is when we surrender everything, lean not on your own understanding, even on the timetable. You know, in God's timing, he delivered the son. Son's name was Isaac. You know what Isaac means in Hebrew? You know what the name means? means laughter. Because when God said, I'm going to give you a son, the mama, she was an old woman, couldn't have kids, she laughed. Ha! 
And then when he was born, they all just laughed a different kind of joyous laugh, like, I can't believe we didn't wait on God, but this is beautiful, amazing. His name is Laughter, and I think his name is Laughter because it's funny when you think about these old folks with his baby. I mean, they're, they're buying formula with their Social Security check, you know. <laughs> Everyone in the house is eating strained peas because nobody's got any teeth, you know. So it's like, it's this funny stuff. But the point is, God is always right on time. God is always right on time. And some of you are waiting and you're wondering, is this true? I'm waiting for healing. I'm waiting for help. I'm waiting for answers. I'm waiting for my prodigal child to come back home. I'm waiting for an unbelieving loved one to, to sort of see the light. I'm waiting for something to happen. And, and, and I'm just saying, wait on God. Wait on God. He's always right on time. He will renew your strength in due time you wait. Let me just give you one last piece of this, this faith picture. Because God's, God's saying, man, it's obedience and action. Sometimes you've got to drive past your headlights and you've got to wait on God. But you know what? Faith, all this just is saying faith is trust. Faith is trusting in God. Do you trust the one who's leading you and calling you more than you fear the place he may take you? We come now to the maybe most sobering part of the Old Testament. One of these stories that's just so difficult. Chapter 22. It's the one that Abraham is remembered for. God calls out to Abraham and gives him a test. Now, Abraham doesn't know it's a test. He's just living out his lower story. You never know it's a test at the time. Verse 1. God said to Abraham, and Abraham said, here I am. And God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love. Isaac, you know the one. And you go to the region of Moriah, which is about a three-day walk. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain that I'll show you. It seems so barbaric and strange, and there's a lot we could talk about here. Child sacrifice was common in those times with other religions, but not with the Jewish faith at all. In fact, God forbade it in the book of Deuteronomy. It doesn't seem to make any sense, and yet... Here's what's amazing. Verse 3. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. Is that what you'd have done? I don't know that it's what I would have done. Faith is obedience in action. He doesn't say, but God, this is the son you're going to make the plan through. This is my only son. He doesn't say anything. He just, he does it. Verse 5, he said to his servants, you stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there and we will worship and then we will come back to you. A lot's been noted about how he said we there. Like, he's, is he confident that they're both going to come back down the mountain? And verse 6, it says, they're walking up there and the little boy is saying, Daddy, Daddy, I see the wood and I see the fire you've got, but, but where's the lamb? And then in verse 8, Abraham says, God himself will provide the lamb. And so they went there, and in a verse that's just almost too painful for a father to read, Abraham ties up his own son and lays him on that pile of wood who stared up at him with those big dark eyes, horrified as he saw his father raise that bronze blade in the sun, about to plunge it into the heaving chest of his own son. When God interrupts and says in verse 11, Abraham, Abraham, Abraham. Don't lay a hand on that boy. Don't do anything to him. Now I know. God says, now I know that you fear me. Because you have not withheld from me your son. Is there anything you would withhold from God?
Because apparently he wants to know. And apparently that could come in the way of your faith and your trust. Is there anything? What's your Isaac? You trust God? This is a hard passage. But I think it says half-hearted faith won't do. Halfway obedience is no obedience. Here's a God before whom our small sacrifices and our little lip service simply melt into dust. What's your Isaac? See, this is Moriah. And this was a test where a father was asked to sacrifice his son. But on another hill, not very far away, in fact, some think the very same hill. Some years later, another son would trudge up the hill carrying not on his, his back, not a, not a pile of sticks for a sacrifice, but carrying a cross because Calvary is right there at Moriah and it was Jesus himself. And this one wasn't a test. This was a real sacrifice because you and I are bound on the altar of our own sin, ready to receive the tragic ending to our story. And at the last minute, God provides a lamb, the living lamb of God, his own son, Jesus Not a ram in a thicket, but a Jesus on a cross who steps in for you as a sign of his love and his invitation to have you trust him. Do you trust that God? This is a God who says, will you trust me? He's given everything for you. Will you give him everything in return? Let's pray. Lord God, we ask you to We ask you to help us with our faith. And we declare now to you that your faithfulness is great. Help us to trust. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.